Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. <clears throat> As you're turning there, 2 Peter was written to Christians being confronted by false teaching from within. And the apostles' antidote is to stress the truth of the gospel over and against what these false teachers were peddling. And what they were peddling was a diabolical mixture of Greek philosophy, oriental mysticism, and Christianity, which regarded material things such as the body as evil. And this led to an elevation of special knowledge as necessary for salvation, and therefore produced this ethic of licentiousness and sexual immorality, which Peter addresses in this letter later. So when we arrive in chapter 2 of this letter, we find the author warning his readers of God's imminent judgment for those who wantonly mislead his people through false teachings. And so verse 9 of chapter 2, our text for tonight reads, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The first and main point from our text this, this evening is this. God will surely judge the wicked and deliver the righteous. God will surely judge the wicked and deliver the righteous. The second half of verse 9 says, The Lord knows how to do two things according to this verse. Rescue the godly and punish the unrighteous. So the apostle teaches here, as, do, as does all of Scripture, that every person that's ever lived falls into one of these two groups, the righteous or the unrighteous, the godly or the wicked. And these two groups of people have, very, have two very different outcomes. One group is destined for judgment and the other for deliverance. Also note that the apostles' assertion that God is actively working to bring about the final outcome for each group. Both deliverance and judgment are not the results of some blind force or chancy happenstance. No, the Lord knows how to bring judgment and the Lord knows how to rescue. It is his providential hand at work in both. So remember Noah from the Old Testament. Peter references Noah a few verses earlier. This Old Testament saint was told by God that judgment against mankind's wickedness was coming, and he was to therefore build an ark to deliver him and his family in that day of judgment. And come it did. For 40 days and 40 nights, God literally flooded the earth with his retribution. The story of Noah's ark is no heartwarming children's story of paired up animal couples eating hay and grain from Noah's hand. Far from it. It is a sobering account of God's judgment against wicked men and women who thumb their noses at God and conclude arrogantly, I will do things my way, thank you very much, and I'm ready to face the consequences. Only a deluge of epic proportions was not in their realm of possible outcomes. Noah's heralding of impending judgment elicited laughter and taunts instead of sackcloth and ashes. But before we point a condescending finger at these naysayers, consider the Apostle Peter. As certain as God judged the world in Noah's day, so too is a day of final judgment approaching for the unrighteous. That's the bad news. 
And quite honestly, we don't like pondering this reality much more than the people in Noah's day did. There's not many things that grate against our contemporary sensibilities like talk of final judgment. But as Cole pointed out in the sermon this morning, humans have always balked at the reality of hell. So maybe we're not so unique in our postmodern age. But friend, one cannot read many pages of Scripture without being confronted head-on with the certainty of God's punishment of sinners. And as Cole reminded us this morning, damnation is more dreadful than it has ever even been portrayed. Alas, it is the bad news that precedes the good news. It is the heart-stopping diagnosis that begs for a cure, a way out, a rescue plan, a boat, even an ark that can ride out the waves of God's judgment. And God has sent more than a seafaring wooden vessel to carry you safely across the raging river of judgment. His final rescue plan involved wood, but not in the shape of an ark, but rather in the shape of a cross. And the nails he used this time were not meant to hold one plank of wood to another, but to fix his son, our Lord Jesus, to that wood. And in doing so, secure final deliverance for those who would flee this ultimate day of judgment by embracing this Savior as their only hope on that day. The apostle writes in verse 9 of two certain groupings of people, but elsewhere in Scripture, the illusion that we can avoid being counted in the first grouping of wicked people by simply being morally superior to the majority is wiped clean. Scripture and our own conscience confirm what we all know to be true. We are firmly in the camp of the wicked, despite our best attempts to convince ourselves and others to the contrary. But Peter is not pulling a fast one here. There truly is a second group of righteous people, but none of whom possess this righteousness inherently, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, the mark of the righteous is not sinlessness. The mark of the righteous is that of faith and repentance. It is the one who has heard God's, who has heard God's pronouncement of judgment and who runs to him, not from him. Had Noah's contemporaries believed Noah's message, nay, God's message of hell and high water, and had changed their minds and secured a spot on Noah's ark, they too would have been counted righteous and experienced the deliverance that God afforded Noah and his family. So you, friend, may do the same. Believe the Apostle Peter. Believe Noah. Believe God. Judgment is coming because of your sin. So embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord and greatest treasure, and you too shall be counted righteous in that day of judgment. Now, there is an aspect of Peter's warnings that could be understood in this text to be referring to preliminary or temporal judgment before this final judgment. And if this is the case, it in no way lessens the severity of the warnings of ultimate judgment. For the wicked, this temporary judgment only serves as another warning of an even greater judgment to come. And for the godly, we can simply assert that the Lord still knows how to rescue the godly from trials, like he did in Noah's day, or as we will see shortly in Lot's day. 
Beloved, if and when you experience the trials and tribulations of living in a fallen world, a world that is currently under the judgment of God, take heart. As we sang this morning, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. For God has demonstrated his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And if Christ died for you, he will hold you fast till the end. Now let's consider some applications to this text. The first is this from Noah. Be a herald of God's judgment and salvation like Noah was before the flood. Be a herald of God's judgment and salvation like Noah was. Verse 5 of 2 Peter 2 describes Noah as a herald of righteousness. Are you a herald of righteousness? Are the words of God's salvation frequently on your lips? It is simply a reality of the human condition that we sing the praises of that which brings us joy. But if you're like me, you often find yourself too silent. So perhaps we could spend more time reflecting on our salvation until we overflow with words of declaration of this good news. But I would also suggest, even if you don't spontaneously erupt out of a sense of joy in your own salvation, perhaps the best thing that you can do is to obediently proclaim the gospel while asking God to send the corresponding joy that should engender our gospel proclamation. It is often the obedience itself that brings about the joy that is often lacking. Application number two, and this comes indirectly from the preceding verses by way of another Old Testament example. So if you look at verse six, it reads, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And verse seven, if he rescued righteous Lot, then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Do you remember poor Lot? He chose for himself the better portion, the portion of well-watered land. And in doing so, his proximity to the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah was, quote, tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, we might find Lot a surprising description of a godly man given what we know about him in Genesis. Perhaps Peter infers Lot's righteousness from Abraham's intercession for the righteous of that city. Remember how Abraham interceded for that city. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked, Abraham inquired of God? Suppose there are 50 righteous. Would you spare the city for the sake of 50? What about 40? 20, Lord. How about 20 righteous? In the end, the Lord concluded, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. Question, brothers and sisters, those of you who have escaped the wrath of God's coming judgment, when was the last time you spoke with the Lord on behalf of those who are even now under his wrath? How often do you plead with the Lord to spare the ungodly? To deliver those who are under the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of his beloved son where they may have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Whose name are you currently taking before the Lord in intercession like Abraham did for his nephew Lot? 
I don't think it's a stretch to link Lot's classification as godly in 2 Peter 2 with Abraham's faithfulness to plead for God's mercy towards him in Genesis 18. Parents, are you praying your children into heaven? Children of unbelieving parents, are you praying for them? Beloved, are you praying for your lost friends, co-workers, family members? They are not only lost, but are heading, but are wandering headlong for the gates of hell. So let us intercede on their behalf like Abraham did for Lot, so that in the final day they too may be counted righteous. The last point of application I introed this devotion with the short overview of 2 Peter and mentioned the false teachers of his day whose philosophy of Gnosticism, it vilified all material matter and led to licentiousness and sexual immorality. And there is similarly a false gospel in our day that denies divine judgment and falsely concludes that it doesn't matter what you do with your bodies in this life. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die and after that... Nothing. The implication is since you won't be judged in the afterlife because there is no afterlife, that it doesn't matter how you live today as long as you're happy. Now, the distortion of this reality is clear for the thinking Christian. Your body is simply not your own, but belongs to the Lord. He purchased it with his blood. Therefore, do not give yourself over to sexual sin. That's the first implication Avoid sexual sin, for sexual sin harms the body, and the body is of value. It is not worthless. God created it and has subsequently redeemed it. Therefore, honor God with your body, 1 Corinthians 6.20. The other implication of this theology of the body is this. There's a sort of wrong-headed pseudo-spiritual Gnosticism that can creep even into the church, And it reasons like this, that only spiritual realities matter and what we do with our bodies doesn't. Therefore, we may give ourselves to spiritual disciplines but neglect physical ones. We may not use this as a license for sin, but we may neglect caring for our bodies and fail to realize how this affects our spiritual health. God has created you body and soul. He intends you to care for both. So maybe this means eating healthier, getting more sleep, exercising more frequently. And while we've all seen the extremes, uh, examples of people who have made an idol out of their physical body, this abuse does not take away proper use. The biblical reality remains that we are creatures, both body and soul, as God created us. And what we do with one directly affects the other. In conclusion, The only one we have to fear is God who surely judges the wicked and delivers the righteous. This God will either destroy your body and soul in hell or he has redeemed you both body and soul in Christ. So be a herald of this news of God's judgment and mercy. Pray for those under his judgment even now and honor God with all of your person for you belong to him. Let's pray. Father, our only hope in life and death is that we belong to Jesus. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So may we honor you in our bodies as we herald this good news 
pray for the salvation of the unrepentant and offer up our bodies as a meaningful sacrifice. For your glory and for the good of your people, we pray, amen.